You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. I ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, as I've been doing uh, most weeks, uh, I'm providing these little green sheets. Uh, this is the scripture references that we'll be looking at. I tried something new today. I'm not promising that I'll continue to do this. But the ones in bold are the ones that I'm actually going to uh, have you turn to uh, today. The rest are the ones that I'm going to read. But you can keep these uh, for just uh, remembering what scripture references we looked at. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is what we're looking at today. And if you want to get one, get, go get one right now. Um, don't be embarrassed about it. Uh, we've been working through this book of Ephesians slowly. And we said that our goal is not to get through the book, but to actually get the truths of the book. And so to that end, we spent four months in the first chapter alone, and it's only today uh, that we are getting into chapter two. And before we get into the specifics of chapter two, I want to just jump back and take a 30,000 foot view of chapter two, because if you are able to read it this week or you've read it in the past, you would see that it is one big contrast. It is one huge contrast marked by past and present tense verbs. Let me show you what I mean. If you were to look at verse one, you would see this, and you were dead. That is past tense. If you were to look at verses four and five, but God made us alive. That is present tense. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time, that's past. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time. That's past. Verse 13, but now in Christ, that's present. And then verse 19, so then you are no longer, that's past, strangers and aliens, but you are, that's present, fellow citizens. This is one big contrast of who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ. Today we're just going to look at verses 1 through 3 uh, and the past condition of what we were before we came to Christ. And here's what I want to say, and we always want to shoot straight here. Uh, we don't ever want to say peace, peace when there is no peace. We don't want to make you feel comfortable if you should not feel comfortable. Uh, and here's the truth of the matter is that if you are not in Christ today, if you are not a Christian, then this doesn't explain or describe your past condition. It describes your current condition. And it's a very serious one. And so this sermon, I'm hoping today, will help uh, us to explain also why there's so many seemingly intelligent people who just fight against this and don't get this, don't see things the way that we see them, and why our world is so messed up. So let me read this, and then we'll dive in. <clears throat> this is the very word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
This ends the reading of God's word. We are desperate uh, for his Holy Spirit to come and to speak uh, to us. Father, we thank you that we get the privilege to gather here in your name. We know that this might not be a freedom that we have uh, for our whole lives. And so I pray, God, that we would be diligent. Lord, I pray (coughs) that you would empower me today. Lord, I pray that you would empower me to say only what you want me to say. I know that there's some controversial things uh, that I'm going to talk about today, Lord. And I know that the enemy will love to twist those things, would love uh, to come and to just discourage and to divide this church. And so we just pray against that in the name of Jesus. Uh, We pray that your truth would come forward, uh, forth in power, and that we would be changed. And we just pray this. And I also pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, oh God, oh Holy Spirit, open their hearts, give them life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm sure that we've all seen those TV shows uh, where they have the before and after pictures or videos. Uh, Maybe it's an old, broken down, rusty car that hasn't been in operation for 10, 15 years. And then these professionals come in and they restore it. Uh, to its original beauty, and it just runs like a, just a fine machine. Or maybe it's uh, uh, the, the room in a house or an entire house that, that's broken down, and the professionals come in, and they just transform it completely to where you're blown away by the transformation. And I know they, they have a lot of shows, or used to have a lot of shows even regarding people who were not so attractive right before, Uh, but then the professionals come in once again, they give them new makeup, uh, they give them new hairstyle, new clothes, and then there is a transformation that takes place. In all of these, what has happened is that the old has been done away with and the new has now come. And getting a glimpse of the new shows you just how outdated, how run down, or how ugly the old was and how desperate change was needed. This week and next week, we are going to talk about a massive transformation of spiritual status that has taken place in the lives of people who have placed their faith in Christ. Our former spiritual condition is listed for us in verses one through three of the text that we looked at today. Our former status was simple. It was that we were dead. We were dead. We were spiritually dead. According to Paul here, we were not just really, really sick. We were not just super ignorant. We were dead. We were dead. We had no ability to make ourselves alive. Therefore, everyone who is not in Christ, everyone who is not a Christian, is actually a dead man or a dead woman walking. That's what you are. That's what we were. This is a paradox for sure because you look at your family members, your un- unbelieving neighbors, uh, your fellow students, your co-workers, and they're very much alive, right? They're talking, they're breathing, they're running around, uh, living life. And yet the basic tragedy of the fallen human existence is that people who were created by and for God are now living without God. They're living without God. We'll talk more about our spiritual deadness next week, but I want to spend time uh, today that we have uh, talking about that spiritual deadness and how it actually manifests itself uh, in the world. Our great enemy, 
uh, before we're Christians and even after we're Christians is always and has always been the evil trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These three work together to discourage, to, uh, to depress, to frustrate, to hinder the progress, the kingdom of God in this world and our joy in God. All three are present in our text today. Uh, these three are what keep the world in bondage to sin and death. These three are active even in the lives of those who are in Christ now, seeking to bring us back into bondage to our old master, to our old way of life. You can feel the pull. If you're here today, you know that pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. For those reasons, I believe that we need to know who these enemies are, point them out, and then see how they work. Knowing who they are or what they are and how they work will help us uh, in our continued struggle against them uh, in our lives and the lives of others. And it'll also help us to see uh, those who are still in the power of the world of flesh and the devil. These are powerful enemies who need to be identified if we are to have victory over them. We are currently in the football season, right? The Super Bowl, the big game is next uh, week uh, where the Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers just kidding. Um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, sorry about that, uh, will be playing in the big game, right? And I can guarantee you what is going on right now is that the, these teams are studying each other's videos. They're looking at each other's offenses and saying, when do they run certain plays? When they line up in this formation, what are they going to do? Why are they doing that? Because they want to know how their opponents are going to attack them and they want to stop them so that they can gain the victory over them. It just makes sense. In a real war situation, this is what goes on, right? You have satellites taking satellite photos of the earth and they're thinking, they're saying, where are the troops? Where are the enemy troops? Where are they stockpiling their weapons? They have eavesdropping that's going on, right? They're trying to listen in on their conversations. We have spies. We have code breakers that come in trying to decipher codes so that we can say this is exactly where they're coming and when they are coming. Now those examples that I gave of football teams and uh, armies are examples of physical confrontations. Ours as Christians is a spiritual confrontation. It is a spiritual confrontation. We are in a spiritual battle against forces that we cannot see and we cannot hear. And so we need to know how these attacks will manifest themselves. They come in three different sources, as we've already said, uh, and they all work in harmony together, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I want to look at each of these for a couple purposes. First, to identify them, as I said before. Second, for those of us who are Christians, to praise God that we've been delivered from them. I mean, that's one of Paul's biggest points is, you were this, aren't you so glad that you're not anymore, that God has delivered you? And then the third thing is to overcome their continuing assault on our lives. I'm going to take them in order, and the first one that we see in our text is the world. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course 
of this world. So the very first question we need to ask is this, what does he mean by world? Because if you look in the, uh, in, in the Bible, you will see that the word world is used in many different ways. Um, and so uh, we're going to see a verse later that says, love not the world. And yet, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, right? These are used in different ways. So how is it used here in our text? And I believe that it refers to the evil system of this world, which is under the control of Satan and is completely opposed to God. That's what he means by the world. John Stott, in his commentary, talking about the, the phrase course of this world, has the following to say, quote, the Greek phrase... Uh, course of this world brings together the two concepts of this age of evil and darkness of society organized without reference to God. So both words course and world express a whole social value system which is alien to God. It permeates indeed dominates non-Christian society and holds people in captivity. Wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, repudiating God, immoral, repudiating absolutes, or materialistic, glorifying the consumer market, by poverty, hunger, or unemployment, by racial discrimination, or by any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of the course of this world. Their influence is pervasive. People tend not to have a mind of their own, but to surrender to pop culture of television and the glossy magazines. It is a culture of bondage. We were all the same. We drifted along the stream of this world's ideas of living, end quote. That's what he means by the world. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 uh, through 17. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to read several other New Testament passages that show Paul's view of the world, and then I will meet you in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, the first that I'm going to read is John chapter 16, verses 20 and 33. Jesus speaking of his soon departure out of this world. Here's what he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The implication of this verse is that the world is evil, it's imperfect, and that it is not in accord with the will of God. James is very sharp in his rebuke of people who may love the world or who may want to be a part of the world. In James 4.4, he says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I just need to clarify something. He is not saying that if you have any 
unchristian friends, you need to drop them. That is not what he's saying. What he is saying is that if you look at this world and the evil system of this world and you love it and you embrace it and you want to be a part of it, then you are not a friend of God. You cannot embrace an evil system that is opposed to God and still claim to be with God. Finally, and there are many more, we end up in 1 John chapter 2. And here's what the Apostle John says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want you to turn over to 1 John chapter 3, one chapter over from 1 John 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 and 13 is what we're going to look at. 1 and 13, he says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world hates you. Finally, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and then 4 and 5. Here's what he says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. From these verses and more, we see that the world is the evil system once again that is under the control of Satan, that is completely opposed to God. The world, Satan hates God, and Satan hates all of the people of God, and he is hell-bent on destroying the church. That is what he is doing. That is what he wants to do. How is this worldly system manifest in our culture? How is this worldly system manifest in our culture? I'll give you some examples first thing is that it's manifest in the, uh, the world saying that that little baby growing in its mother's womb is actually not a person yet. Therefore, we have every right to cut its life short. That's one of the ways that the world system is manifest uh, in our culture. Another way is the belief that regarding marriage, love is love which means that you can marry whoever you love, which means a guy and a girl can get married, and a guy and a guy can get married, and a girl and a girl can get married. It's also manifest in the belief that gender is fluid. It is constantly changing. It's further manifest in the belief that he who dies with the most toys wins. And that the more that you get in this life, the more wealth that you acquire in this life, the better. Because that's where happiness is. It manifests in those who uh, continue to acquire wealth and they don't give a rip who they step on. They don't give a rip about who they financially bankrupt as long as I get richer. And so you have people living in multi-million dollar homes, multiple multi-million dollar homes, 
Whereas there's people who don't even have a roof over their heads and are exposed to the brutal cold of winter and the brutal heat of summer. It also manifests in the fact that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and no one cares. Some people don't even have a, a meal to eat every day or clean water to drink. Millions of people across this world. It's a system also that believes, that thinks that rudeness and slander and gossip and sexual promiscuity are all virtues to be celebrated. Celebrated. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 23. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 23. I don't think that you can look at this passage and think, man, Isaiah, Isaiah must have had the United States in view when he wrote this. But the truth is that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Cultures tend to go towards sin and away from God. That's what they do. But listen to this and see if this does not describe our current culture. Here's what he says. Isaiah 5 verse 20 through 23, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in drink in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. You hear that? Wise in their own eyes. How many times do we hear people just stand up and just spew this wisdom from the world? They're so smart. They're so, they have so much insight. How many times do we see people who celebrate drunkenness, right? Look at me. Look how cool I am. And we hold those people up. This is our culture. It's a culture that is completely opposed to God and his words. It's a culture that leads to death. Spiritual separation from God. This is what Paul means here in Ephesians 2 when he says, the world. The world. And sadly, we were all a part of it before Christ. But thanks be to God that he's delivered us from this. The second great enemy of the human race is Satan. It's the devil. He and his demonic forces are seen in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 2, where it says this, following the prince of the power of the air. Once again, there are multiple, multiple passages that we could go to in the Old and New Testament. Um, I'm just going to point out one today uh, that points out Satan as the ruler of this world, as the enemy of God. It's in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 31 and 46. Jesus speaking, he says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Satan, the ruler of this world, brings darkness and he wants everyone to remain in darkness with him. He is opposed to God who is the light. How do we know this? Well, 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's many more passages that we can look at, but let me just say this. Satan is the reason that we are in the mess that we are in in this world. He has opposed God from the beginning. In the very beginning, he tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God, to question God. He is the one who daily seeks to discourage us, to create divisions among us who are the people of God in order to hinder our service for God in this world. Satan hates God and Satan hates you. He will act like your friend. He will stroke your, uh, your, your, your ego. But in the end, he will kill you. He will kill you. He's smarter and stronger than you are. He lives in and loves darkness and wants to keep you there. He is a master of deception, disguising himself as an angel of light in order to further deceive. He comes to us using words such as love and, 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 and happiness and, and peace and unity. And yet he knows nothing of these things whatsoever. He promises riches and power and fame, but in the end, it will just cost you your life, your eternal soul. He is the reason our country is in moral destitution. He's the one who keeps your neighbors and your coworkers and your fellow students in darkness, blind to the truth, believing what is false, loving and celebrating all that is immoral. He was our master. He was the one who called all of the shots in our lives, and we were completely under his control. Well, the final of the great enemies of the human race is our fallen flesh. We see this in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Our flesh has many desires, which let's just admit, in and of themselves are not bad desires, right? We all have a desire to eat. That's a good desire, right? You don't eat, you die. We all have a desire to drink, right? If you don't drink, you die. You cannot survive, all right? We also have a desire to be clothed and sheltered, which again is a necessity. We need those things. We also have a desire for sex, which is a good thing because God is the one who gave us that desire and then gave us the gift of sex. But since the fall, all of those desires have been corrupted. So now what do we do? Now we not only eat, but we eat to excess and we go into gluttony. We drink to drunkenness. We spend excessive amounts of, of money on the, the latest fashions. Some people, if you look at some of the, uh, the dresses around the Hollywood scene, some of those dresses or outfits, uh, they put down enough money to probably feed hundreds of people for an entire year for one outfit. 
Others live in multiple uh, million-dollar homes where others don't even have a roof over their head. On top of all that, we've removed every limitation of sex regarding sex. Um, Have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It can be with the opposite sex or it can be with the same sex. It can be with one person or multiple people. Love and commitment, not required at all. If you get the unintended results of an unwanted pregnancy, we can take care of that as well. Simple procedure. We can remove that tissue from your body. There should be no limits on sexual pleasure. In fact, to, to, to deny yourself any sexual pleasure is wrong and immoral. That's what the world says. So why, let me ask you, is there adultery in the world? Why is there homosexuality in the world? Why is there rape in the world? Why is there prostitution or pornography, uh, child pornography or sex trafficking? Why are these things in the world? Well, because I have desires, says the flesh. And my desires must not be denied. They must not be denied. Paul talking about his continued struggles uh, with sin and those fleshly desires that wage war uh, in, in Romans chapter 7 verses 15 through 19. If you've ever read this, you're just like, oh my goodness, Paul's going through the same struggles that I went through. Uh, here's what he says in Romans 7, 15 through 19. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do not do what I want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." And then in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, here's what he says regarding the flesh once again. He says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is an evil thing. It is not a neutral thing. It's warring against us. These verses, these three verses in Ephesians chapter 2 define the spiritual condition of every single person born into this world. We were all like this. We were all exhibiting our sinful desires to one degree or another in various ways. We were following the evil system of this world, captivated uh, by it and informed by its philosophies. Uh, We were controlled by Satan, buying into his promises for, for joy and happiness and fulfillment. And we were all held slaves to the desires of our flesh with no ability to say no, even if we wanted to. I just want to, as a pastor, I feel uh, obligated to speak uh, to our current 
culture, um, uh, particularly the political system that's going on right now. I know that any time, I mean, he's talking about the course of this world. I know that any time I talk about this uh, stuff, I get, start to get a little bit political, that there's going to be a controversy. And I know, as well as I know my name, that I'm probably going to make some people angry. That is not my intention to do that. I prayed about this. I ask you to pray for me too. Um, and I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would, would speak through me. But there's some things that are going on in our world right now that I think need to be addressed as, uh, uh, as, as Christians here. On January 20th, the new president, Joe Biden, gave uh, his inaugural speech. And I just want to stop right there and say I absolutely detest all types of political speeches. I don't care what party they're coming from. I hate them. Uh, they are to me like glorified uh, graduation speeches, right? With all of these, you know, pie in the sky platitudes, like if you reach for the stars or, or if you put your mind to it, I, there, there's no substance in them. So it doesn't matter whether it's coming from Republicans, Democrats, or, or independents. I hate political speeches, okay? Uh, but listening to uh, Joe Biden's inaugural speech, his main theme was that of unity, unity. And I get this, right? A, a, a president's not going to get up there and say, we need to be divided, right? He's not going to do that. But when he was talking about unity, I couldn't help but think it's impossible. It's impossible. And, and, and let me just stop here and say, this is not a down with the Democrats and up with the Republicans. That's not, anyone who knows me knows that I um, I'm critical of both sides, right? I'm, I'm willing to say they're doing right here. They're doing wrong here on both sides. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, I would speak so much against Trump's rhetoric because I thought it was evil and I thought it was demonic. I loved his, his policies in, in regard to many things, but his, his, his rhetoric of name calling and stuff like that, it made me sick. And I would speak so much against it that people actually uh, claimed that I was uh, encouraging people not to vote Republican, which I never did that. But I, I just want to say that this is not a uh, up, with the uh, up with the Republicans, down with the Democrats. That's not what it is. But here's what I want to say. His call for unity, when I listened to it, was impossible. And here's why it's impossible. I'll admit that there are issues that I don't know exactly where I stand on, okay? There are a lot of issues that I consider gray areas. They are not black and white. Let me give you a couple of those. I don't know what to do with illegal immigration. I don't know what to do with that. On the one hand, I know that it's wrong, right? Because this, this, this country is based on laws, and there's a lawful way to come into this country. But on the other hand, I'm convinced that I know and love several people who are in this country illegally. I know that. I'm friends with them. I love them. They love my family, right? And I also know that, that the church is to welcome the foreigner in. And so what do we do with that? I don't, I don't know exactly what to do with that. I just want to uh, be honest because I know, once again, that there's laws that need to be followed. Secondly, I, I don't know what to do with uh, tax dollars going to fund government welfare programs. One of the biggest reasons that I don't know what to do with this is because I don't think the government really knows how to spend money. I think that they just throw money at things and the mere sentiment that we're putting money in there should fix the problem. But they're not, there's no accountability and it usually doesn't work that well. And then plus, you know, let's face it, there are people in this world who are lazy. 
and don't want to get a job, don't want to work. But a lot of people who are in poverty right now are there because of circumstances beyond their control, right? They're trying to work hard. They're trying to get ahead, but they're, they're in failing school systems. They're in uh, deep poverty. And I do believe that we should be helping them. In fact, the church should be doing more than we are, but very often we're silent. We're holding on to our stuff for dear life. So once again, I don't know what to do with that. I also don't know what to do with racism. Okay? I know that it exists. I'm not an idiot. I know that it exists. And I know that it, it exists in a greater degree than I realize in my little bubble that I live in. But I also know that it's wrong. And at the same time, I do not believe that everyone who voted for Trump is a white supremacist. I don't believe that. Everyone who, who, who uh, protested at the Capitol buildings, I don't believe that they are white supremacists. I believe that that, that, that title, that, that label of racism is just thrown around. Those are many issues. There's many issues and, and, and problems in this world. And the solutions to me are not necessarily black and white. But at the same time, there are issues that are clearly black and white that are right or wrong. We've mentioned some of these before. The slaughter of unborn babies in their mother's womb is wrong. No ifs, ands, or buts. And to be fair, I have, I've thought about what it must be like to be that 14-year-old girl who has just found out that she's pregnant and her partner, and what their parents are going to think. And the easiest thing to do is just make the problem go away. That's a real dilemma. That's a real emotional problem. But the answer is never, never to terminate that pregnancy. It is never. It is always wrong. Another issue that I am just black and white on, and I believe the Bible is as well, is that marriage is designed for one man and one woman. And that there is no, there is no same-sex marriage. You cannot redefine marriage. Another thing that I think is black and white is, is that there is this gender confusion that's being taught in our schools and in our society, allowing biological boys who identify as girls to, uh, to use the girls' bathrooms and the girls' locker rooms and to participate in, in the girls' sports Encouraging pre-teens and teenagers, uh, teenage boys and girls, to, to, to question your gender. And if, you're, if, you're, if your mind and what you think your gender should be doesn't match the outside, then if you discover that before puberty, we can give you puberty-blocking agents. But if you discover it too late after puberty, then we can give you testosterone if you're a girl. We can give you estrogen if you're a boy. And we can do the, uh, the needed chopping off of the parts so that we can, so that your body can conform to what you know that you are. To me, that is wrong. God created them male and female. Regarding these issues and more, when I hear the president call for unity, I can't help but think this is absolutely impossible. It is impossible because maybe it's just me, but what I hear their call for unity is, I hear this, they're saying to us, lay aside your outdated views, your archaic views, and embrace ours, 
and all will be well with you. We will embrace you as our own. But if you don't, we will fight against you. We will silence you. We will cancel you. That is what we will do unless you agree with us. There's this thing that's going on right now that people are calling uh, the cancel culture. The cancel culture where if you don't agree with the, the views of those who control the media or the entertainment industry or whatever it may be or the political system, then you need to be silenced. You need to be put out of business. If you're a baker or a photographer that will not recognize and celebrate same sex, then you should not, you do not deserve to be in business. And some may even go, and I've heard it, you don't even really deserve to be alive. And if you voted for Trump, then your YouTube channel needs to be canceled. Your Twitter account needs to be taken off. And you, yourself, need to be deprogrammed. I could literally give dozens of examples. And when I look at those, I'm thinking there's no possibility for unity. We cannot be unified with a, with a world system or a political uh, system uh, that pushes for these things, that says these are okay and they need to be celebrated. We cannot agree to disagree, okay? Think about it this way. Think about if you were living in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, and you uh, had an opportunity to speak with Hitler, and you're sitting down with him, and you say, hey, I heard that you're killing Jews by the thousands, and that you're torturing them. I got a problem with that, like a huge problem with that. And he looks at you, and he says, well, I don't consider them to be human. I don't consider them to be real persons. In fact, I think they're vermin that need to be exterminated. So I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. And then you responding and saying, okay, I see that. We'll just agree to disagree on this, you know? Because I love uh, your, 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 that you want a stronger Germany. That's absurd, right? You would, not, you would not agree to disagree. You would fight against something like that with all that you are. You would seek to shut it down because it's evil and it's deadly. And I want to stop right here very quickly and say, when I say fight, let me remind you that ours is a spiritual warfare, not a physical warfare. The pastor of my church on Sunday said, we need to take up arms. We need to start. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? We fight on our knees. We fight by crying out to the God of heaven, the Lord of this universe. That's how we fight. In fact, Jesus said he who lives by the sword, right, will die by the sword. And then when uh, uh, James and John were coming out of that city that rejected Jesus, what was their response? Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And Jesus is like, yes, yes. No, Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're talking about right now. No idea. Ours is not a physical warfare. We do not physically and mentally seek to hurt and kill people. We seek to reach them. We seek to share Jesus with them. We pray that he, in his mercy, grants them repentance that leads to eternal life. That's what we do. Blowing up abortion clinics is ungodly. It's satanic. Storming a Capitol building and breaking windows and, and threatening politicians' life is from the devil. I don't care whose name you're doing it in. 
If you want to know how to respond to this evil system, then study the life of Jesus, right? He said these crazy things like, love your enemies. What? Pray for those who, who use you. Oh, he spoke sharp words of rebuke too, right? He called out evil as evil. He kicked people out of his father's house who were misrepresenting his father. He's our example. I appreciate the president's call for unity, but with all due respect, I see it as impossible. I know that this is in a different context, but 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16 says this, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, once again, I, I'm just going to tell you, like, I am never, ever calling to be uncivil to these people. I have many unbelieving friends. I have relatives uh, that are involved in, 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 in same-sex unions, and I love them, and I talk to them. I don't fight against them, but I speak truth into their life as well. We are in a spiritual warfare. We must fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the reason is because Paul tells us in our text, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 3, he tells us what the results of following or being in agreement with the things of the world are. He says this, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were people fully and unquestionably deserving the wrath of God Almighty eternal separation from him. There is no question whatsoever. People, that is serious stuff. It is serious. We were all spiritually dead, following the course of this world, following Satan, following our own sinful desires. That would be an utterly hopeless situation if it were not for the first two words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. These words are monumental. We have just talked about how evil this world is and how we were a part of it and we were following the course of this world and we were following uh, the prince and the power of the air and we were following our own sinful desires and we were by object, we were by nature objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's hopeless. And then Paul says it's not the end of the story. And I want you to read these two words with me aloud. He says, but God. Isn't that awesome? But God. This is not the end of the story. Oh, this is a hopeless situation. You're dead. A dead person cannot do anything. Oh, but God. God is still on his throne. God is the God of the impossible. And he is with us. And I absolutely love this. And so here's how I want to close our time today. I just want to read this. I'm going to read this to you. I want you to soak it in and we'll talk about it next week. Once again, all that junk in, in verses one through three. And he starts in verse four and he says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been 
saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And to that I say amen, right? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We were so lost and so objects of your wrath. And so in the judgment day, we could not stand and say, but, but we would say, yep, yep, that's what I deserve. But because of your rich mercy, even when we were dead, you made us alive. Thank you so much for your grace. Oh, God, oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, oh, Lord, please, please, the only way that they can embrace you, embrace you is if you actually open their eyes, is if you actually bring them to life spiritually. And I pray in the name of Jesus, please, please, that you would do that for your glory and the good of this nation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.